This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the City of New York. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Ian Lipkin of Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health. If any of you know Dr. Lipkin, it will not surprise you that we jumped straight into the conversation. And it was such an interesting and fun talk that we went pretty long. But along the way, we cover how his passion for cultural anthropology led him on a circuitous path towards his medical degree and eventually to epidemiology. How his background in theater and mythology helped him in his career and in bringing better public health to the world. The role that serendipity played in his career. His early work at the beginning of the HIV epidemic in San Francisco, before it was understood as a viral disease. His experiences flying into, rather than away from, new viral outbreaks around the world and the price he's paid for doing so. And the surprising role that infectious disease may play in illnesses not often associated with infection, such as autism, depression, chronic fatigue, POTS, and so-called brain fog. And finally, why he sees it as a scientist's responsibility to ensure innovations leave the lab and become products and services that make a positive impact in people's lives. Wait, so your family's from your family's from New York initially, right? Well, my mother was born just outside Governor's Island. She was on a ship that was coming from what, whether it's Russia or Poland, who knows at this point. Um, and there was a typhoid epidemic on board. They were not able to land. She was, so she was born inside of territorial waters, the U.S., but not on land. She was born on, she was born on board. Oh, literally on the boat. So she was on the boat. So actually, so I was, I was sort of, I had the sort of link to infectious diseases that goes back to my mother's birth during the middle of a typhoid epidemic. Did that, like, were they medical people? Was this, did they? No, did not this? at all. My, my mother's family, um, there were, it was a group, it was four girls, two of them married young. Uh, and they were very bright, but they were very young. Two of them, uh, despite the fact that their parents were illiterate, except in Hebrew, um, went to uh, universities and got advanced degrees. My mother had an MSW. <clears throat> Her sister was a PhD in chemistry. And think about this. this you know, they'd be over 100 years old now. So this is pretty unusual, particularly for people coming out of indigent circumstances where they had days when they couldn't. There was no food, right? So, you know, they were highly educated. On my father's side, um, they were even less literate. They they had, I don't even know if my grandfather knew how to write. I know that my grandmother did not. They, um, they lived in the Bronx. He was a watchmaker. Um, he had three kids. One became a truant officer. That was the daughter. And... Uh, my father's brother became a principal in the New York City school system. But during the Second World War, when my father went overseas, my mother uh, went to get a master's in social work at the University of Chicago. And that's really what changed everything. Um, and it actually set the course, for, I think, for my career. So we grew up, uh, I grew up in Hyde Park. And this is an area, it's a little bit like the Upper West Side, but but, but, but smaller and more intimate and really very much focused around the University of Chicago. So he went overseas. He was a, an induction officer. 
And he was very much involved in integrating the armed forces because they were recruiting in Louisville, Kentucky, and they were bringing in no black soldiers. And my father looked around the base and saw that there were plenty of black automobile mechanics and you have to be very smart automobile mechanic. So he realized that the various tests that were being used were culturally biased. And so he revised the IQ test and then they started recruiting equal percentages of black and white, um, you know, GIs. And then he went overseas and when he came back, he finished a PhD, became a psychologist. He was very interested in twin studies. Hmm. And he was offered an assistant professorship at Yale, but he couldn't afford it. I think it paid like $3,000 a year. So he wound up going into private practice, but they stayed um, around the University of Chicago anyway, because they liked the community. I was born in 52. So this was a, a transitional time for, you know, economically, racially, and so on. So I think it's worth talking about the University of Chicago because it's, it was such a fascinating place. So you had the people who came as part of the Manhattan Project. A large portion of that work was not done in Manhattan. Sure. People moved from Columbia to the University of Chicago, and that's where you know the, the you know the you know, the first atomic fission was achieved. So I grew up with all these kids, and I had Enrico Fermi's daughter as a teacher. I grew up with, you know, Anderson and Sachs and all these other people. You were at the lab school then? You were at the Chicago lab school? I was at the lab school, yeah. So I grew up with all these kids with sons and daughters of those people who participated in the nuclear energy, the birth of nuclear energy. And in addition, um, the whole genomics revolution, you had people like Beetle there. So although my parents were not involved directly, they took care of many people at the University of Chicago, my father became a therapist. And uh, you had all kinds of things that came out of it, very fertile area. So I was raised with a lot of scientists. Um, and right. But I never thought that this was where I was going to go. Did you get pressure from, I mean, it sounds like you had a, a you know, both your parents ended up with, with advanced degrees. And, and in, in either the social sciences or the, the hard sciences, did you get pressure to do this? Is this like... Only, Did you want to do something else, but they said you had to be a life scientist? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, um, there was a point at which um, I remember having a conversation with my mother about medicine. And her comment was something like, you know, I didn't send you to here and there and the other place for you to become a doctor in private practice. Hmm. And the idea was, the idea was that these are things, these are not legitimate callings. So remember, my mother comes out of this tradition of extraordinary scholarship, although it was arcane and somewhat, you know, you know, I can't really get into the whole concept of, of reading Talmud, but you know, that whole aspect of scholarship nonetheless moved into their thinking about genetics and art, and music and science. And they were self-educated people because they didn't have parents to help them out with any of this. But my father was voracious consumption, consumer of culture. He read, you know, multiple newspapers every day, art, music, science, all these sorts of things. But he was a very hardworking guy, and he had an enormous amount of respect for people who contributed to what he thought of as a, the real, you know, the crux of civilization, which was art, literature, and science. 
and he encouraged us to do these things. So I have, I have two sisters. One of them is a playwright and a director, and the other one is, a, is an urban planner. So the only thing they insisted on was that we did something that made a contribution. Uh, and it could be arts, it could be literature. I don't think anybody had any idea that I was going to go into science. Right. Or including you. Including you. Including me, yes. Yeah. Right. But you went to uh, you went to Sarah Lawrence for college, but but you, so you weren't a science, you didn't you weren't involved in sciences there. No, so I originally wanted I originally wanted to go to Oxford or Cambridge. And they wanted me to take an additional two years in a US college before I could go to you know to one of the you know to Oxford. I said I wasn't going to do that. And I started looking around for places that would be interesting. Sarah Lawrence had a donning system. So you would take three courses at a time and have an opportunity for concentration. And that's really why I selected it. And I took, you know, I graduated with many more courses than I needed to finish. I actually finished school in three years, but I stayed for for it because I decided to go pre-med. So I started by taking literature and philosophy and uh, psychology, and then took a lot of theater classes with people at Cafe La Mama and the Living Theater. And I had a band and I, you know, I played a lot of music and I thought that was going to be my trajectory. And I never got to take an opportunity to take a class with him, but, but Joseph Campbell was there on campus. He had this little, um, office that was set in the middle of the quadrangle and you had to be a very senior person to get into his classes yeah joseph campbell taught at sarah lawrence i didn't realize oh, yeah that. yeah he taught at sarah lawrence yeah and he was married to the head of the dance department so, so really is that how is that how you got interested in myth i know your your major was mythology and anthropology oh, i was interested in mythology long before that i started i was very interested in mythology when I was a kid because it was sort of like it, it was like comic books, but on a you know on a grander scale. <laughs> and you sort of see all the same themes coming through all the time. And several years ago, I was uh, at a conference, something called Pop Tech, which was like TED, but somewhat different. It's held in Camden, Maine. And I was spending time with a neurolinguist from UC Berkeley whose books had been very influential in developing Obama's campaign strategy. So his, you know, everybody from Axelrod and Plouffe read these, you know, read these books on, you know, how you sort of appeal to archetypes and the imagination. So he was casting himself as the, the polar opposite to George Bush. Mm. Obviously this precedes Trump. Nobody knew that. We were going to get quite that far apart, but in any event, you know the the rainbow poster, um, the good father versus the dark father, mm -hmm. you know, all of that stuff that played out in Star Wars was exploited for that particular campaign. You and they all cited, you know, jo you know Joseph Campbell and other people and all these Jungian archetypes that resonate subconsciously with us and actually drive us right. in various ways. So I was raised a lot of that. I saw a lot of that. I appreciate it. I understand it to some extent. Um, and I try to use it when we try to promote things for good, like 
vaccines, it's physical distancing and so forth. Uh, so it's been very useful in my career in, you know, in promoting what I think is science. And public so health. do you, you actually find, that's interesting. I also, I mean, we've talked about this before, just, you know, casual conversations, but I've also done a lot of theater growing up in high school and college um, and was also from the liberal arts in, in college as an English major. Um, and I've often talked about the, the power of the humanities and the power of the liberal arts um, in so many other professions, but it sounds like you've, you've had that experience that these, it's not like you look back and go, why did I waste my time with mythology and anthropology? Why did I waste my time with theater? Like these have come back and had a real impact in your life. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, it's obviously critical that you have the methods, the engineering required to convey whatever it is you want to convey. I look at, you know, without, without these technology that we're using to exchange ideas right now, we couldn't exchange those ideas, but you also need to have content. So when I was, you know, I, when I left, when I graduated from college, went to medical school, I, uh, one of my first girlfriends in Chicago was a descendant of, of Charles Pratt. Now, Pratt was an early, you're going to wonder where the segue is going. <laughs> Uh, Pratt was one of the first partners for, uh, for John D. Rockefeller. So Rockefeller had the content, he had the oil, but Pratt had the barrels, knew how to make the barrels and knew how to handle the transportation. <laughs> so it's the same thing. So you have to have a combination of ideas and the conveyance without either, you know, it doesn't work. So I think that the, one of the advantages I've had and people with liberal arts educations have is the ability to convey information in a way that's accessible. Lots of people, I think, decide that they're going to be pre-med in college and then, and then you know, continue on with whatever they were, the path they were on before, but then throw themselves into medicine. How did you end up specifically zeroing in on becoming a micropunter? So there, there are a few, you know, it's, there are a number of twists and turns in everyone's career. So I... I began, uh, so I thought I was going to get a PhD in cultural anthropology. I was going to do it in the UK. I was finally going to get to Oxford and do this there, you know, and had a different, it wasn't called cultural anthropology, it was called structural anthropology. It was, it was the same thing. Um, and I realized that I had very little to offer wherever I would go to do my field work. And I thought, I thought if I had a medical degree and I did an internship, I'd at least be able to offer something in exchange for what I was taking. So that was my initial plan. And I'd seen um, uh, some fantastic film footage was taken, you know, amongst uh, Eskimo populations, which were located up in, you know, up at Nunavak Island. Originally, I thought I was going to go north. Uh, that, was, that was sort of my plan. So I, I signed up for medical school. I never thought I would get in. I did very poorly on math. I didn't do particularly well in science, but I did really well on verbal and on general information. And I'd only had one course in science in college, and that was that was inorganic chemistry. So they must have looked at my resume and, my, and said, you know, well, obviously he's bright, but he has to have the, the classes. So I managed to take all of my classes for pre-med in my fourth year, then after I'd finished, huh. basically. And I went to Rush, which was training people to become you know, primary care docs, which is perfect for what I wanted to do. While I'm going through this whole pre-med process, uh, during this medical school process, 
ironically, um, in my uh, first year, I'm taking a neuroscience course, and I get uh, a 62, <laughs> uh, which is not good. 65 <laughs> is passing, 62 is not passing. And the reason I got a 62, first of all, was that we were all grading on the curve. There were a lot of people who were cheating. And there were two people who weren't cheating. Both of us ultimately became neurologists. This is the irony. And many of the questions had to do with a disorder called myasthenia gravis. And they were trying to promote this hypothesis associated with myasthenia gravis. It didn't make any sense to me. It came from quantum physics. And the idea was that there were going to be quanta, there were going to be reduced number. And because the neurotransmitter number, neurotransmitter concentration was too low, you weren't able to move your muscles. The whole thing didn't make any sense to me. And we both screwed up the same questions. So the two of us had to meet with the instructor. We sat down with him and he started asking, giving us an oral exam. And we were getting through all the answers appropriately. And he said, so I don't understand why you failed this test. I said, because there's something fundamentally wrong with your model. <laughs> How'd that go over? Yeah, it didn't go over very well, but he had to admit that we knew with all the answers to all the other questions. So ironically, about um, about uh, a year and a half, two years later, I'm getting ready to make my third year because I finished all my courses and everything else. And um, I want to take neurology. I'd met, a, I'd met somebody, um, you know, when I was traveling between, you know, after between college and medical school who lived in London, you know, so I had a place to stay and everything else. And then when I came back, I'd wanted to go to Alaska to sort of pursue this cultural anthropology work that I was going to do in the Northern desert. And the only thing available was orthopedics. And I didn't want to do orthopedics up there. So they said, well, we have one other primary care opportunity. I said, where's that? They said, Tishomingo, Oklahoma. I said, where's that? And he said, well, you know, it's, you know, central Oklahoma. So I looked it up and it was a reservation that was halfway between Oklahoma City and the Texas border. So I went there for three months. Huh. And, um, and while I was there, I became, you know, this was sort of still getting back my cultural anthro roots and everything else. Um, I realized that there was so much I didn't know. So I was going to have to do more than an internship. I did an internship, and then I completed a residency. In my last year of residency, I wrote to um, people at the University of Washington, which is where I was finishing the residency, and I asked for an infectious disease fellowship because people had just, people had just discovered um, uh, toxic shock syndrome and, uh, you know, and... Uh, um, Legionella, cause of Legionnaire's disease and all this stuff. And I thought, wow, this is just like Paul the Crew's Microhunter. It's detective activity. It's going to be fantastic. And I thought that I would be able to get in. And they said, if you come there. So I went to, you know, I talked to people in Washington. They said, well, you have really nothing to offer. You know, you don't have any training in basic science. You're not an epidemiologist. You're not a biostatistician. You're just a clinician. You can't do a, you know, an Albert Schweitzer thing. That's that's over. I went to the CDC and I trained at EIS and I said, look, if you come here, you may work, wind up doing occupational health. 
we can't promise you're going to work on infectious diseases. So I said, I'm not going to do that. So I looked around at what else I'd enjoyed. So I thought about the time I'd spent doing neurology. I'd worked with a guy named John Newsom Davis, who discovered the real cause of myasthenia gravis. It wasn't this quantum concept. Instead, it was antibodies directed against the acetylcholine receptor, which made a lot more sense. And I'd had a good time in London, not only doing that, but also they had the first CT scanners that were produced mm. by English Music Incorporated. You'd walk up this turreted staircase to this, you know, elevated area. So it looked like something out of you know, young Frankenstein. Right. And then there was this machine that clunked around and made pictures. So I thought, I can do neuroscience. This will be fun. I can do neuroimmunology and so on. <clears throat> so I went into neurology instead. And originally, I was going to go to Mayo Clinic and then go back and do something which was a patchwork of internal medicine, neurology. But um, I got a call from the chair of the neurology department, UC San Francisco, who offered me a slot. So I thought about this. I, I'm still able to stay on the West Coast. That'll be fun. I've never been to San Francisco. Let's see what that looks like. <clears throat> that looked like it was going to be you know, a fascinating place to work. And I drove from Seattle into San Francisco on Gay Pride Day. And I'm coming down 24th Street, driving into the Castro, and it's just complete pandemonium. But but everybody is sort of, you know, it's like cartoon characters dancing in the air off the cliff who haven't realized that there's a long way down. This mm. is just before eight. So within, I would say, two or three months of the time I'm in San Francisco, we have the first cases of HIV, which we don't know is HIV. And as you know, Montagnier died last week, right? It took, you know, so I opened up the first clinic. This is at UCSF? This is UCSF. I, I'm working at the Hate Free Clinic. I'm doing other kinds of volunteer work. And I'm seeing lots and lots of people with lymphoma, weird diseases, various types things that are only associated with opportunistic infections and nobody knows why it's not even called AIDS in those days. It's called grid gay related. Right. So then the case comes out where there's a kid, a baby who manifests these, these same symptoms. And the only thing that began to make sense was an infection because this kid who had received multiple blood transfusions, but obviously it's not sexually active. So we began to put something together it was clearly going to be some sort of an infectious disease. And I was the only person who was willing to see these patients because people were afraid of taking care of these patients. So one day I got a, this really was the transformation for me. I got a, um, I have this clinic, which I'm going to use now, I think, to stay in San Francisco because I could have expertise in an area that has value. And they sent me a guy who's a ski instructor from Vail, Colorado, who they think has multiple sclerosis. <clears throat> and as I start examining him, his exam is changing literally every five minutes. And he suddenly develops weakness on both sides of his face, what's called a bifacial paresis. And my, I look at all my notes and everything is evolving so rapidly in front of me that this looks to me like it might be acute Guillain-Barre. So I do a spinal tap and I'm getting no spinal fluid. 
and I do something you're not supposed to do. I connect it to a syringe and I suck because I know I'm in the correct position. And this glue comes out and his spinal fluid protein is just the highest I've ever seen. So I call people and say, what are we going to do for this guy? He clearly has an inflammatory process, but he's also immunosuppressed. But if we don't do something, he's going to die. So I called around UCSF trying to find some way to eliminate what I thought were going to be antibodies attacking his nervous system. Nobody would do it. They said he has non-A, non-B hepatitis, which, you know, all gay men have non-A, non-B hepatitis. It was a sort of blanket statement being made. I said, you don't even know what that means. What, what do you mean? Not, well, it means we can't find evidence for hepatitis A or hepatitis B, so it must be something else. This is ultimately defined as hepatitis C. It's really discovered mm. by, you know, by, uh, you know, the, the, the people who won the Nobel Prize, you know, last year. Uh, two friends of mine, actually, Harvey Alter and uh, Charlie Rice. But at that point, it was non-A, non-B. So I called around. I finally found somebody across town who had just bought a centrifuge. And he was willing to take this patient because he had no money to pay for the centrifuge. If I would start the lines because he didn't want to have anything to do with it. So I drove this man over. I plugged him in. We did the centrifuge. We eliminated antibodies. and He improved. So I wrote my first scientific paper. Really. <laughs> based on work that I started in the context of the HIV pandemic in San Francisco with a neurological syndrome. So it all sort of began to come together, you know, the neurology, the infectious disease, the tropical medicine, where did this thing come from and anything else. Then I started trying to figure out what am I going to do next? So a friend of mine who was a professor at UCSF sent me to Cold Spring Harbor for a meeting called was a short course called the Neurobiology of Human Disease. And the last person to talk was a guy named Carlton Gatchasek, who was the first person to talk about what ultimately were just, you know, defined as prions. And I'd known Sam Kruzner at UCSF as well. So I knew about Gatchasek's work. He's the one who found this disease called Kura, which is transmissible, you know, encephalopathy. It looks like any, it looks, it's a dementing illness. So I came back and I said to my friend, I said, you know, I know you want me to stay and run this clinic and work on pain with you and so forth, but I really think I want to do neurovirology and infectious diseases and figure out a faster way to find out when people are sick, why they're sick. So I went to Scripps Clinic. I called a guy named Mike Oldstone, who thought I was somebody else. His secretary picked up the line and said, Dr. Lipman is on the phone. So he thought he was being connected with a guy named Howard Lipman. Before he could even finish, I said, you know, my name is Ian Lipkin. I'm board certified in neurology and in medicine, and I want to learn how to do basic science. And he said, you did your board in two? And yeah, I said, I did three years of each. He said, well, if you're willing to do that, you're probably willing to do this. So he brought me in at the very bottom and I started literally sort of, you know, like a dishwasher, you know, working in the mail room, right. you know, at, uh, you know, you know, it, you know. And actually it's, it's interesting because he didn't even know that the only reason you went to medical school in the first place 
was so that you could become a cultural anthropologist and have something to offer them. Yeah, no so, this is like the longest con in history. No clue. <laughs> but, you know, that life happens while you make other plants. So then I find myself in this basic science lab. And had I known I was going to be there for six years, you know, I would have gotten a PhD. I might as well because I did all the work. So I started at the bottom and I spent six years. I spent four years, three years with him. And then three years with a colleague of his who was a brilliant molecular biologist who trained at Rockefeller, a guy named Mike Wilson, and using subtractive cloning and learning molecular biology and really being the first person to apply purely molecular methods to discovering infectious agents. That led me to um, my first job, which was at UC Irvine, where I had a terrific chair who was clinical but who gave me an enormous amount of freedom and would periodically call me up and say, don't bother to come in and see the patients. I'll take care of them. You just stay in the lab. So um, I got a Pew scholarship largely because uh, Josh Letterberg, who was, I don't know if you ever met him. He was at one point the president of Rockefeller. He was somebody who was the first person to discover bacterial sex, right? The whole basis for biotechnology, for everything you promote. It all can go back to guys like Oswald Avery and Josh Letterberg. Anyway, Josh took me in as a, um, you know, as a, you know, as a mentor, and um, it was enormously helpful to me. Somewhere along the line, you know, I was sent some samples from New York State Department of Health, Wadsworth Center, from patients with encephalitis who had not been identified as West Nile virus, they were told they had St. Louis encephalitis virus. We analyzed these using methods which we developed over a period of several years, found West Nile virus, and then Alan Rosenfield, who was the dean of the School of Public Health, and Joshua Letterberg, the former president of Rockefeller, um, recruited me to Columbia to set up a program in pathogen discovery and surveillance. Josh was very concerned about emerging infectious diseases. He'd written a number of books on this topic um, and was consulting for the Department of Defense and a number of other groups on the whole topic of infectious diseases and what we can anticipate because Josh was convinced we were going to have a pandemic. This is back, you know, in the mid-1990s, long before people were talking about this. And so I came here uh, in the Department of Epidemiology to build a center that was going to focus on these sorts of these sorts of issues. What could we do to prevent these happening? I'd already developed subtractive cloning, which had been used to define, you know, uh, a number of different, you know, various pathways for central nervous system development, but it had never been used for infectious diseases. And to this day, we use variations on subtractive cloning. We discovered West Nile virus, implicated it in the encephalitis outbreak in New York, and that was the basis on which, by which I was recruited here. During the process of my recruitment, I met um, Ezra Susser, who also championed that recruitment. And Ezra was becoming interested in autism. I had become interested in autism a couple of years earlier um, because um, 
they were trying to put together a birth cohort perspective where they're going to collect materials all across Norway, which at that point had a population of four and a half million people. And people were going to be followed throughout the course of their lives to look for biomarkers for disease, relationships between exposures and genetics and timing and different diseases, everything from autism to Alzheimer's, you know, cancer and everything in between. And so I had an opportunity to join and help develop this cohort and build it and design it. So I had these two things that were sort of, and they were aligned because I was very interested in the role of infection in a chronic illness, which other people weren't really talking about very much. Although there had been effort, you know, obviously there have been Nobel prizes for retroviruses and cancer and other herpes viruses and cancer and, you know, various introductions of, you know, people were thinking in terms of the role of infections in mental illness for a very, very long time. In fact, if you go back far enough, the majority of asylums were filled with people been exposed to syphilis, right? Right. It's the major cause. So, so it all sort of began to come together. Um, in any event, as I was here, we, you know, I was here literally moving during 9-11. And although everybody talks about the Twin Towers, what they forget to talk about is the whole biological warfare aspect and the fact that we had anthrax. Remember the anthrax? Yeah, thing? yeah. All of that stuff. So there was this big push to build um, biodefense, which was really meager in, you know, in the U.S. at that point. So I came in from the outside. I was not a member of any of these institutions. They were so balkanized in New York. So I put together the first program that bridged them all. So we had Einstein, Cornell, Columbia, Sinai, Rockefeller, Wadsworth, um, UMDNJ, all these things, everything in health and human services region too. We scored extremely well. We got this thing, we gave away my $250 million worth of research funds over a period of 11 years. During the course of that work, I met people at a company called 454 that was just beginning to do this. So I spent some time with Rothberg and a number right, of Jonathan others. Rothberg, right. Right, exactly. Yes. And, um, and they were only getting 10 nucleotides at a time. So our scientific advisory board pushed them to the point where they were now getting 50 nucleotides. We did the first sequences of infectious agents, the first use of high throughput sequencing to identify infectious agents and discover the causes of various outbreaks, causing food insecurity, causing you know, encephalitis, hemorrhagic fevers, all kinds of things. Um, and, uh, and that sort of led us into sequence. And since then, you know, that we developed all these other methods, um, you know, that have built upon that, like, you know, VIRCAP-seq and yep. work we're doing in serology and all the rest of this stuff. So, so, and now, um, I, and then I found as a result of, you know, our ability to pioneer some of these things, I was being invited to participate in a wide range of outbreak investigations where governments would not be uh, welcome. So I was invited into China in 2003 to help with SARS because I gave a, I gave a class. This was another sort of interesting story. There's so many of them, but I, 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 I was giving a class and I was talking to these graduate students about 
this outbreak of pneumonia that was unfolding in Guangzhou. And I started talking about a PCR assay that we built that was at the three prime end of the genome of the SARS coronavirus. We patented this, by the way, 12 hours before anybody else. Mm. So we actually have a U.S. patent on this, this assay. And because everybody was the other end, and it was not nearly as sensitive. So this is really useful for surveillance. So as I'm talking about this, there are two students who leave the room. By the time I get back to my office on the 18th floor, there are two people from the Chinese consulate saying, we need to, we'd like to talk with you about these assays. So I talk to them about the assays. And then uh, the next day, I get another call. I say, could you come down to the consulate? So I go for tea. So I go down to the consulate, which is opposite, you know, the, you know, the, uh, like, in, it's in the 50s. Um, opposite the Circle Line tour, just on the Hudson. And, and we're ta- I talk with them some more. And the next day, I get an invitation to go out to dinner. So I go out to dinner. And they say, we need you to leave for Beijing tonight. So then I had to get permission from the dean, the president's office, all these other people to go to China in the middle of an outbreak. And the dean of the School of Public Health, Alan Rosenfield, argued, said, look, if we can't send public health people into an epidemic, we don't belong in public health. So I, I flew with my colleague, Thomas Breeze, to China. We landed, there was, there was nobody there. There were, only, there were only three people on the plane other than the pilot and one flight attendant from Narita to, uh, to Beijing. And I met Chen Zhu, who subsequently became Minister of Health and who received a, an honorary doctorate a few years ago at Columbia. Um, so I was recognized for this in 2016 by getting a gold medal because I was on Collins committee at the time. I had to get it, um, you know, an exception for the emoluments clauses, right? Right. Because this is a solid gold medal. It's heavy. It's probably worth $10,000, something like that. I don't know. And then I got another one in 2021 Mm. from the Chinese government for my contributions to the second. Right. And these have not, but these have not been costless for you either, because if I remember correctly, I mean, I remember in March, 2020, when before we all, you know, here at Columbia, before we necessarily knew how bad this was going to get over the last few years, I remember Ron Katz, who worked with you from our office at Columbia Technology Ventures, who worked for you for, you know, forever. Um, and Ron's, Ron's amazing. He's, he's so sad to see him leave Columbia, although he's got a great new job. But I remember he came back and said, you know, every Ian story would start with a laugh and a roll of the eyes because it was always something sort of a little crazy. But <laughs> but he came back and said, you know, Ian got COVID and is <laughs> it is quarantining in his basement. <laughs> so you got... Well, this, you, is the you second, actually, this is the second time I got sick. The first time I went to China, I'm I'm running a conference, the first international conference on SARS, with the late Scott Hammer, who was chief of ID. And um, and it's in the old New York Academy of Sciences building, which is on the east side. Yeah, I remember. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous mansion. Building. Anyway, so I'm doing this remotely because, you know, I'm not really feeling entirely well. So I haven't gone in, but I've got a cough, and I can't really control the cough. And I, and but I'm moderating the session, and I get a call 
from New York City Department of Health, Marcy Lake, who says, you're sick. And you've been back from China for less than 10 days. And you were supposed to call us. <laughs> Oops. If there's a, I said, I'm really sorry. She said, you ain't going anywhere. You just stand. You can't leave your house. And so that was the first time. The second time, I did not get infected in China. I got infected in New York City. And I know exactly where. I was giving an interview. And a sound man came in setting me up and i'd already complained about at this one station about the fact that they had shared makeup palettes you know i said look and i can do my own makeup thank you i don't need help with this and i don't need help with the hair right. another way the theater another I, way the theater background comes in here no, yeah, it's not <laughs> not a problem i know exactly what to do but then the sound guy came along and he popped you know an earpiece in and this guy a day later was sick and I got a call from the station, and I said, "You guys, you re you're reusing these earpieces. You're out of your minds." And of course, two days later, I'm sick. Right. And so um, I got sick in New York, not in China. I want to come back to the to, to your work on on autism briefly, um, and not only autism. I know you've also done work on MECFS, and you've yes. done work on depression, and. Actually, I, sh I should note here, um, I have a family member who has a, a, a related chronic illness at POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Oh, yeah, that's, um, that's awful. Yeah. That came after a bout of mono. Uh, I don't think many people would associate infectious disease as being something that runs through the, you know, the autism, MECFS, and, and, uh, and depression. So how do you string those together? Like what got you interested in those areas? It's really not complicated. Um, so if you go back, you know, in the history of our evolution, the most important thing an organism can do, right, in addition to bringing nutrients is to keep things out, right, that threaten it. And you've got a variety of different kinds of parasites that can live on you and in you inside of cells like viruses. And in the process of responding to those, to those agents, there are a whole range of immunological processes that occur. Those can become dysregulated. They can result in autoimmunity. If you think in the body, you know, you think about how complicated it is to orchestrate all of these activities, the nervous system, muscles, gastrointestinal tract, central nervous system, writ large, all these other things that need to operate in lock sync with your circulatory system, everything else. If you have an infection that results in the release of cytokines, for example, that make you feel ill, that interfere with cognition, you've got one series of problems. If you lose the cells that are required to support the olfactory system, as can occur in SARS-CoV-2 infections, you lose your sense of smell, you lose your sense of taste. If you infect blood vessels and you basically wind up with either small emboli or local obstructions, you can get kidney damage, liver damage, lung damage. If you have some sort of occlusion that occurs, you know, in blood vessels in the lungs, such that you get a mismatch in the blood flow coming in and going out, and the air exchange, which occurs, you know, in the sacs adjacent to the blood vessels, 
you can either write one with low levels of oxygen or high levels of CO2 or both. So all of these things are a function of, you know, infections. You also have the same thing that occurs with cancer. There are many types of cancer where inflammation results in cancer. So mm. the classic, the best example I would say for this is probably um, hepatocellular carcinoma with hepatitis B. Now with some of these other illnesses, like I was talking about earlier, like autism, or the man who just called me from Norwegian Institute of Public Health, where we're talking about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, we've done work with this birth cohort that I was describing for you earlier, where we have found that exposure uh, to cytokines indicating inflammation, indicating infection in most instances, which may be superimposed, by the way, on genetic susceptibility. So it's not nature or nurture, it's a combination of the two, can result in you know, derangement of the way the brain grows, circuits that don't complete, cells that don't wind up where they're supposed to be, which can result in autism, ADHD, schizophrenia, depression, all sorts of things. And if you think in terms of the peripheral nervous system, you can wind up as this gentleman I was talking about earlier uh, with HIV, you know, I met in San Francisco, you can wind up with Guillain-Barre. If it involves the autonomic nervous system, you can wind up with POTS disease, right? Which is what you said, one of your family members. Yep. So all of these things, you know, can be connected. Now, the question is, how do you make that connection? If you're fortunate from a scientific vantage point, you're able to get a hold of a sample at the time that the trigger occurs and is still detectable. So for that, you use things like sequencing, right? And we've discovered over 1,800 viruses, like lost count at this point. But we've also done work with bacterial species too. Uh, and you can get similar kinds of things with Lyme disease. Uh, because again, what you're talking about really is, you know, the impact of the infection. It's not so much the infection, you know, causing damage in this specific tissue, function of what we call tropism, you know. It can be something much more generic. It can be systemic and have different effects. Um, but if you're not, you know, timely in your collection, the appropriate sample, you can still go back and ask questions by using serological methods, antibody-based methods, to find examples of where you can see during a certain period of time, somebody seroconverted, they have high levels of immunoglobulins that are directed against this agent or that. And because it was low here and it's high now, you know that somewhere during that intervening period, there was an infection. Mm. And if you have a strong enough population, a large enough population, you can make those links. And if you can replicate those in another group, right, then the relationship becomes stronger still. Got it. And is, so, that, is, that, is that what you think is happening with, the, I mean, so presumably this is relevant for the so-called long COVID as well, which I think we're just starting to understand, but is that, does that imply that that's your, your body reacts to the, to the infection from COVID and then, and then it, there's downstream damage from that? I think that, you know, long COVID or, you know, post-acute, you know, these post-acute syndromes, which go by other acronyms, require some dissection. Right now we're lumping them all together. 
and I think that's not appropriate. There are at least two groups. One is those people who have structural damage, and the structural damage accounts for the problems that we see. And I describe one example of how that might occur, right? If you have somebody who has uh, a mismatch between oxygenation and you know, removal of carbon dioxide and you know, the vascular supply to that portion one, that's one possibility. Or people who have renal dysfunction or hepatic dysfunction or cognitive dysfunction as a, you know, as a result of infection of you know, blood vessels that supply certain organs. That's sort of in one basket. And the other basket, and I'm talking about extremes here, are those people who have some sort of different response, which is presumably triggering innate and adaptive immunity that results in this damage. And there's always going to be you know, a challenge in recognizing the overlap, right? Because you don't necessarily have just one or the other. So you have to tease these things apart because the approach to management is probably going to be different. Um, and so one of the things that I really want to do is to find support to investigate this. And, and because, as you mentioned earlier, we've been doing a lot of work with myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue center for several years now. Actually, I've been doing this really since 1997. Um, it means, you know, we can look for similarities between these disorders because some people with post-acute COVID syndromes appear to have something that looks very, very much like MCFS. Yeah. Right. And, but it's not going to be all people, but we need to be able to see whether or not there are things we've learned in MCFS that can give us insights into long COVID and vice versa. The advantage for people with MCFS you know, who have been somewhat unhappy about the fact that this is, you know, some of the funds that might've been useful for MECFS have only really been allocated for long COVID is that we maybe get a better understanding, more insights into how MECFS develops as a function of long COVID because with long COVID, we know the trigger. It was a coronavirus infection and we know the timing. So if you follow the natural course of disease with long COVID, it may give you insights right. into what's happening with MECFS. Right. And with MECFS, we found uh, specific abnormalities that are, that are um, for example, we found that there are differences in the people who have, uh, people who are women and men as a function of estrogens, right? They're very clear links to specific sex hormones we know this not only because there's a sexual dimorphism, but in addition, there are differences in people with pre and post menopause. Mm. And those abnormalities that we find in blood include responses to bacterial and viral triggers that most people would shrug off that they can't. And these are manifest not only with immunological abnormalities, but metabolomic disturbances as well. So we find abnormalities in uh, what's known as the Krebs cycle, the respiratory cycle, which is essential for energy production. But not just energy as we think in terms of being fatigued, but the same systems are likely involved in the brain. So this may account for brain fog. Right. right? And some of these other things. So I, I don't, I think that there's a sort of false dichotomy, you know, when people think about infectious diseases as, you know, 
Infectious diseases are those situations where somebody's got a cough and a fever or an abscess or something. As far as I'm concerned, it's all about trying to find, it's all experimental pathology. What can we learn about causes of disease? Infections are very, very useful in thinking about disease. And infections are not all bad. We use, <laughs> I, I envision we're going to be able to use viruses as vectors to treat disease too. So there are lots of different ways of looking at that. Right. Um, so I still have a lot of work to do, I guess. Right. So that actually leads me to, to one of the last questions I wanted to ask you, which is you've had the ability with all the institutions you've worked with over the years, whether it's UCSF or Columbia, these are institutions with massive amounts of resources. And, and you've also had collaborations with, with governments, both the US government, the Chinese government, others. Um, and yet you've also chosen to work, to, fair, to spend a fair amount of time over your career working with industry, whether it's 454 that you mentioned earlier on their early sequencing work, um, or the work you've done, you know, at our office at Columbia Technology Ventures, we've licensed your technologies for the food industry, for tilapia viruses and salmon viruses. Um, your your work is behind Summer Bio's COVID tests that have been used all over the country. Um, what is it about working? Like, why do you? Why is this important to you? You know, I'm very interested in the science for its own sake. I'm also interested in making sure that whatever it is we do you know, generates products that, that improve public health and economic welfare. It's, I think, selfish to not do that. So I'm going to go back to talking about Josh Letterberg, who I mentioned early on, the former president of Rockefeller. Josh, although he was a basic scientist, told, was very, very interested in doing good. So he told me a story once about how he became a scientist. So he came from a long line of Orthodox rabbis. He was expected to become Orthodox rabbi. He told me that he went around with his father making sick calls. And then at some point when he was an adolescent, he had a conversation with his father about what he was going to do next. And the assumption was he was going to become a rabbi. And he said, I really don't want to go around and make sick calls. I want to make it possible for us to not have so many sick calls. And his father said to him, Whatever you do, if it's good in the world, that's what matters. So my view on this is it is our responsibility to take whatever discoveries we make and to translate them into things that make lives better for people. So my contribution is to, is to provide the medical intelligence that's needed to ensure the integrity of public health, the food supply, which is increasingly important, which is why, although people think it doesn't make any sense for us to do this kind of work, that we invested time in trying to find out why billions of dollars worth of salmon and tilapia were, you know, were being lost right to viral infections, which culminated in vaccines and diagnostics that have actually reduced you know, those, uh, that impact. We've done the same thing with outbreaks of infectious disease. What I've tried to do in addition, and we have this program called GAP, the Global Alliance for Preventing Pandemics, is to find a way in which we can take the tools that we've developed and other people have developed for that matter, and to democratize them, to make them available at a reasonable price so that others can do what we do, because we can't do everything. And we need to adopt a model that is not colonial. And I think this is where your office comes in. 
if you can help us find ways in which we can make the tools that we've developed cheaper, more portable, usable, you know, without a complex cold chain, that would have an enormous advantage. So one of the things that we've tried to do, we've used a, a method called VIRCAPSEQ, which is basically capture sequencing, which enhances um, the efficiency of sequencing by three orders of magnitude. This makes it cheaper and faster and the bioinformatics is less complex. Our hope is that somebody is gonna take that. We're in the process, we just received some support from BARDA to take this through FDA for licensure. And when that's done, products can be used of this sort, which allow us to figure out why people are sick much earlier. And as for us to reach that sort of, you know, those golden minutes where we have an opportunity to intervene. Similarly, um, I think that the work we're doing now, we're trying to find links between infections and chronic diseases may result in vaccines that prevent illnesses. And again, it's more than any one group can do. So there is an advantage to rolling it out in some sort of a product that makes sense. We've done the same with the high throughput PCR assays that have now been placed into a robotic format that Summer Bio uses so that they can do assays with exquisite sensitivity, capturing all the various variants at $10 a pop. You know, I, you know, I, I think there is room for better antigen tests and better point of care tests as well. So one of the things you didn't ask me about is the work that we've done for the entertainment industry and for mm -hmm. Amazon and others. So we have been trying to develop ways in which their industries can continue to run through the course of the pandemic. And in fact, very few productions have shut down. So that we started with the Directors Guild, developed the roadmap, was adopted by the Screen Actors Guild, by the producers, by the studios, though sometimes that's a little more contentious. But this has allowed us to generate the content that we've all enjoyed. Right. Which has actually kept us, which has kept us entertained and alive over these kept last two years. Kept us entertained and alive for the past year. <laughs> so, you know, and we ran the Oscars last year. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and this year we're doing the uh, Director's Guild. It is true. We have very few faculty members of the university who not only are world-class scientists and clinicians, but also have not only had walk-on parts and had parts in Hollywood movies, but also had people playing them in Hollywood movies. Yes, but yeah, and, <laughs> and, and I'll show you one thing I'm very, very proud of. I can find it here. Uh, oh, here we go. Directors Guild of America. Ian's holding up a Directors Guild of America <laughs> pass. So, <laughs> so if, if you want to influence the voting, now you know who to contact. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Lipkin, last question for you. You know, one of the reasons I, I like doing this podcast is to help uh, early career scientists or or clinicians, you know, med school students and others, or even our undergrads, think about. Gosh, if there's if there's, I want to be like Dr. Lipkin someday. And the challenge for you for for you for this, I think, is you've walked a path that seems like it's very much following your passions, but but it, but uh, the role of serendipity in your career. Is really is higher than average, I would say. Um, do you, so, do you take anything away from that? Like, is there is there advice on either things you did that you think worked out, or things that you didn't do that you wish you had that you would tell the next generation of 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 sort of intellectual leaders about? 
I think, as you said, you know, there's a lot of serendipity. I, I would say, you know, I have been really fortunate um, in so many ways. But one of the things I would say is that it's very important that you not be so focused on what it is you're doing at any given point in time that you don't look around you because there's inspiration everywhere. Mm. And the other thing to remember is it's as difficult <laughs> to solve, you know, a simple, really simple problem as it is to work on something that's really complex and multifactorial. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I believe it's true. Um, so if you really rigorously like to dissect a simple problem, you'll find that it leads in other directions and you will enable technologies. This is how, you know, uh, you know, CRISPR was found. It was very, very difficult work, but it was a simple problem. There's an observation, follow up the observation makes sense. The other thing is, um, and this is also should seem intuitive, you know, don't change the data to fit the model, change the model to fit the data. Mm. And if something doesn't make sense, it probably doesn't make sense. And you need to figure out why. Hmm. And the other thing is, I think that it's very important to do other things culturally because you'll learn from those. So I get some of my best inspiration from going to the modern the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I think it's important to read widely in philosophy and literature and read the newspaper and don't be afraid to take chances. And see a lot of theater along the way. See a lot of theater. <laughs> Dr. Lipkin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I really My appreciate pleasure. it. My pleasure, Lauren.